You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From the newsroom at Eater, I'm Amanda Klute. And I am Daniel Janine. And this is Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. With a little help from the biggest names in the world of food and the journalists here at Eater, we try to understand what's happening right now in kitchens, restaurants, and dining rooms around the world. Today on the show, we are going heavy on stories, starting with the breaking news that London restaurant St. John is expanding to a Los Angeles mall. This is a mall we have talked about on the show quite a bit before. It's called The Platform. It's not going to stop us from talking about it again no, today, though. No, no. I'm so excited to talk about this. So we're going to get it's into that. It's amazing how much this mall has is like a now a gravitational center of all food media news. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about with this mall. So we are going to talk about it. And then we're going to talk about we've got the a, rest of the week's biggest stories. Yeah, we've got a story about weed and restaurants. And believe it or not, Nick Cage comes up. Oh, yes, he does. Anyway. What a delight. <laughs> if you like the show, please tell one friend. If you have any thoughts for us, please email us at digestateater.com. And one last thing before we get started, we have a survey for you. It takes five minutes or less, and it really helps us out to make the show. So go to voxmedia.com slash podsurvey or find the link in the show notes. Daniel, biggest story of the week. We're kicking off the show with it. St. John, the iconic London restaurant, is opening a branch in a mall in Los Angeles called The Platform. Mm -hmm. So much to unpack there. This blew my mind a little bit. St. John has not expanded outside of London ever. It's a 25-year-old restaurant. It's I think the first time I went to London as an adult, it was the restaurant that was on my list. I had to try really hard to get a reservation. It was super, super exciting to eat there. I go back every single time I go to London. Really? Yes. I think uh, if you look at smaller cities that have a prominent restaurant, you know, Montreal has Pied de Cochon mm -hmm. and well, and Joe Beef actually. And funny enough, they're kind of similar. If you, you look at a smaller city that has a restaurant that is important, and the weight and and how synonymous that city is with that restaurant mm -hmm. is equal to how much St. John as a name matters to London, Which and is London a is obviously city. a huge city. Yeah. So I think that that you know that's pretty important to call it. Super. Can I ask yeah. you quickly? Yeah. Can you, off the top of your head? come up with a bigger restaurant, important restaurant to important city moves to LA. I, I can the only one I can think of is like if Noma was opening in LA, like that would be just as big. You know, there's a lot of like Sure, those, there's a lot of restaurants that could, but have they in the past? No. But ones that you wouldn't expect. No. And I think it's really it's the biggest transplant it's, ever. It's, it's huge. And St. John is so cool. Okay. It's so yeah. cool. And they're opening in the platform. And longtime listeners of the show will know that the platform is not cool. It's cool in this, it has the veneer of cool. It's basically yeah. a mall, an outdoor mall, where the curator of this development yeah. picked a lot of quote unquote cool brands. Right. So you walk around it, and as a 
yuppie millennial type. Mm-hmm. You see mm-hmm. like, oh, there's mm-hmm. a Roberta's, there's an Aesop, there's a Soul Cycle, there's a cool ice cream shop, there's a really fancy organic nail salon yep. that you can't even walk into. Yeah. And it's just annoyingly all put mushed together and it takes away the originality of some right. of those brands like Roberta's. Like I had a pizza at Roberta's there earlier this year when I was in that neighborhood and it was great, but also made me sad. Anyway, that's enough of us talking about it. I think we should call up the expert, yep. Adam Coughlin, Eater London editor, who broke the story. Broke it? He broke the story. Yeah. The LA Times, I think, had the scoop uh, or had the story, and mm-hmm. then Adam got it out about an hour before they did. Do you love that? Is that? I do. <laughs> Is that some old-fashioned <laughs> eater grit? <laughs> Adam, where are you joining us from? I am joining you from a very nice new hip cafe in East London. Ooh, hmm. what's it called? It's called Balcone at this place called The Factory. Wow, what's the weather like? Um, <laughs> oh, it's been biblical today. <laughs> so first up, tell us what, what is St. John for people who aren't super familiar with this restaurant? Wow, uh, I'd say it's probably the most famous and most influential British restaurant in terms of how long it's been open, how sort of universally adored it is really and also critically how many important and influential chefs have gone through its kitchen and not not just chefs so front of house maitre d's etc and and can you talk a little bit about fergus henderson yeah so fergus is an interesting character he was not a chef so opened in 1994 fergus henderson is is a trained architect and he sort of just got into cooking and opened st john with a guy called trevor gulliver who had run this kind of bar restaurant in London and and got to know Ferguson together, they did this thing. One of the reasons it became so big was because they were so well connected with like the art world and it became the hangout for the young British artists, Tracy Emin, the Chapman brothers, those kind of characters. So it became became like the hip place in the mid nineties and late nineties and then has evolved ever since really. And Hmm. it's still really cool. So Adam, now that you're making bold proclamations like saying it's the most influential London restaurant, would you say it is the most influential restaurant in the nose to tail movement (laughs) as well? Probably, yeah. (laughs) I think one of the the things I would say about the whole nose to tail shtick, that's that's an extremely kind of neat marketing strapline in a way. And I think particularly for American audiences, that's the thing that kind of has caught on. And, and yes, he's written books that that's the name of the book. And that is definitely the philosophy. Mm-hmm. But I think, as, as is often the case, this, this story is, is much more rich than nose to tail. I mean, I think, you know, like St. John serves the best cheese on toast in London. It serves the best green salad in London. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, the most interesting places to eat seafood. It's, it's like people think that you go to St. John and eat pig's nose and, Pig's you know, tails. Yeah. And you do. You do. Yeah. But it's only, to me, it's a part of a much bigger and more interesting story about what they've done with food. That's interesting. So you feel like the message or or the understanding that people outside of London and outside of England have of St. John's is solely rooted in that idea of nose to tail or whole animal dining. It's like reductive. And it's reductive and it's not how you guys there consider it? I I don't for a second deny that that is one of its sort of critical influences and a huge pillar of their philosophy. But Mm -hmm. I think there there is more to it. I talk about it myself as a British restaurant. It is a British restaurant. It's also basically a French restaurant. It's also basically an Italian restaurant. (laughs) It's 
is it, is it that that's another interesting kind of facet of the story and how the story has evolved and the mythology around St. John has, has caught so many people's attention. It's, it's, it's a fascinating sort of case study in, in so many respects. Hmm. There's, there's so much, there's so much about the culture of it that's, that's like Southern European. And yet it's got this sort of reputation of being, you know, sort of an old British working men's kind of pie restaurant in, in some respects, which it's very urbane, actually. Very urbane. Mm. So they are celebrating their 25th anniversary this week. Can you talk about how they've expanded within London over the last two decades? Yeah, so it's a bit of a mixed picture, really. They opened in 94 in Smithfield on the edge of the big meat market. That was one of the reasons why they kind of opened that. They then, in 2003, I think it was, they opened St. John Bread and Wine, which is personally my, my favorite. Often the menu is more interesting, a little bit more creative. They actually opened a hotel, which closed after about three years. It really was not a success. Do you know why at all? I think the, loca- the location was problematic. Hmm. The, the, the thought process of the whole project was kind of perhaps a bit rushed. And they've now opened a standalone bakery in Covent Garden. So I have this theory that the thing, whether or not Brexit happens, the thing that will save the London restaurant industry and food industry in general is, is bread and wine. Because... Hmm. People just seem to always want that. Um, and people, <laughs> people are going to need sustenance and they're going to need to drown their sorrows. <laughs> so with this Los Angeles expansion, why do you think they're going to L.A. and why the platform specifically? It's so weird. I honestly did not believe it when I, when I first heard it. I think they've been presented with an exciting commercial opportunity. I also think, despite the fact that there's this sense... Um, and I, you know, thought it myself that it would be a much better fit in, say, New York, which is much more like London. I, I kind of feel like, you know, based on what I was saying earlier about the fact that it's so French and Italian in so many ways, that the kind of Southern European nature of Los Angeles versus what I think of as New York is more Northern European. I, I don't know. It sort of seems to fit in a way. Um, and I think they'll be able to do some exciting things with produce, given their kind of architectural past and kind of connection to the art world and sort of adjacent fashion kind of worlds and hip scenes. I, I can only think that that sort of kind of factored into their thinking, you know, mm-hmm. and I presume it's just a box, like they can do really whatever they want. When you say that it's an exciting commercial opportunity, what do you mean by that? So I think they want to make some money. Trevor, who Trevor Gulliver, Fit Fergus's business partner, who I get the impression is very much leading this project. He'll have calculated the numbers and realized that this is a, that LA is a food city that is, you know, very, very, very exciting, and that he he, he thinks they can it can do well. Like the the power of the brand mm-hmm. is. Is, is serious. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's a boon for LA, to be honest. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me. Great to talk to you guys. So now that we've heard about St. John from the London side, how else could we conclude the story without hearing what's going on in on the ground in Los Angeles? We have none other than Farley Elliott, uh, Eater LA. Farley, break this down for us. So, yeah, obviously you guys have talked to Adam. St. John is a seminal restaurant for London, and it was a really big surprise that the place was managing to come to not just Los Angeles, but Culver City, which has traditionally been a little bit of a bedroom community for folks who worked elsewhere. It's It's been booming in the past couple of years. Amazon is putting studios in there. Sony, it's got a lot of uh, development projects. It's where Vespertine is. So it's a big get for the area, and everyone's really excited. Mm. 
you have any sense of how L.A. scored this deal? You know, my understanding in some of the reporting I've seen elsewhere is that the developers who own the platform project, which we've talked about on the podcast before, is a sort of modern play place for well-to-do millennial adults. Um, They also own a big project in downtown called The Row, which is a much more massively scaled urban development. And the St. John's folks got, you know, taken over and wined and dined, and they thought about putting a place in there before backing away. And so the platform was actually a secondary option and a little bit of a surprise in that regard. Interesting. Do you think it's going to be a huge success? You know, I'm curious about it. Los Angeles is a pretty particular dining town. We're not the scene that traditionally cares about all the big names. David Chang is popular and he's got a show on Netflix and and Major Domo obviously does well. But, you know, Nomad has sort of famously struggled here. Andy Ricker got sent out of town. So I'm curious as to how much the average diner actually knows about St. John. But I do think that this is a type of dining that we don't see that often, this very European, you know, we're going to put bone marrow on things. We're going to make it really, really really um, rich and exciting and a a sort of lavish time. So I'm hopeful that people can uh, come and find their voice at this restaurant and really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. What's your take on the platform as a dining experience? You know, it's funny. I've said this before, but it's the only place I think that uh, sort of actually looks like what you thought it was going to look like when they first started talking about it. There's a lot of young folks hanging out in front of a sweet green with laptops and Roberta's from Brooklyn is there turning pizzas and and they've really come alive and become a sort of go-to destination. So it's not the traditional place that you would think a lot of people from outside Los Angeles are coming to open. For example, Girl and the Goat out of Chicago is opening in a warehousey sort of space down in the Arts District. But, you know, if they can find the right push, I think that St. John can really make an effort to change the demographics of that neighborhood and and get people excited in a way that they haven't been before. So I'm certainly rooting for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Were you pumped when you heard this? Not that we need to wade into the New York versus L.A. debate because obviously it's been trot over, but it feels like a pretty big win for L.A. in terms if especially if you are a big follower of the food world. Yeah, I I think in in thinking about it in terms of like, we got something that New York or even Vegas didn't get, or even San Francisco for that matter, that's pretty great. And I think the ability to pull in a name that is so universally known by a certain type of dining set is a really big deal for the city. Yeah. Um, I am surprised that St. John didn't end up in New York City first, but as they've said, they like to kind of buck convention a little bit. So why not do it in Culver City of all places? Yeah. Well, Farley, thank you so much for... uh for calling in. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Farley. No problem. Thanks, guys. Bye. Amanda, now on the show, we are going to get into the other biggest food stories of the week, and we are going to separate them with the sound of a ding like this. Magic. Ding. Let's get into it. Daniel, Nicolas Cage has been spending a lot of time in Portland, Oregon lately. Do you know why? Yes. Tell me why. I mean, I know the amount I know about this story is limited to Nick Cage is making a movie about travel hunting in Portland. That's right. It's called The Pig? It's called The Pig. Okay. In Pig, yeah. the Oscar-winning actor will play a truffle hunter living in the Oregon woods who is forced to return to Portland and his past when his truffle hunting hog is pignapped. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's got a pig that he uses in the woods. Yeah. And then the pig goes missing. And then obviously the kidnapper is tied to something that he was something involved he with did, in yeah, Portland. In his past yeah. in Portland. Yeah. So I'm down. I would see I'm obviously I'm obviously, gonna see it. Obviously I'm gonna see it. That's that's not even a question for this. Did you read the New York Times magazine interview with him? Did we talk about this? No, we didn't. No. 
Did you read it? Mm-mm. Oh my God. I recommend everyone go to New York Times Magazine and, and read this <laughs> in-depth interview with him because he's an incredible lunatic. Yeah, he's an incredible lunatic. I mean, lunatic. everyone knows this, but like they really, they really get into it. <laughs> he's The interviewer is asking him about <laughs> shamanic acting. Yeah. You either have the proclivity to open up your imagination or you don't. If you have that propensity and are on camera about to do a scene, what would make you believe in what you're about to do? Say you're playing a demon biker with an ancient spirit. What power objects could you find that might trick your imagination? Would you find an antique from an ancient pyramid? Maybe a little sarcophagus that's a greenish color and looks like King Tut? Would you sew that into your jacket and know that it's right next to you when the director says action? Could you open yourself to that power? So... (sighs) What shamanic talisman do you think he will sew into his truffle hunting sweater? Yeah. Like maybe a little pig's hoof. <laughs> Can maybe I just tell you that I, I only find about 4% of that preposterous? I know. Because <laughs> I know you. Like because you have a shamanic talisman on you right now, don't you? I don't. But if you, were, if you had to play a biker possessed by a demon... Uh-huh. How would you go about doing it? Like you're not going to half-ass it. And the only way you can be a ghost rider is to really become ghost rider. And if finding an ancient artifact from a pyramid and channeling that through you is how you get there, then I mean, you know what's even sadder than carrying a talisman is playing ghost rider and not believing that you're ghost rider. I mean, either way, it sucks. Sure. I don't know. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Go on. Anyway, what would I sew into my? I'm just saying you can keep that in mind as you watch this movie. Do you want to guess like, what his all in? Want to guess what his background is? What do you mean? He must be a thief. He must have been oh. a thief in a past life, for sure. And or he was in, in involved with the mob. All these movies work the same way. Something very crime related. So he had to go out into the wilderness and make his life. Yeah, and I bet he kicks ass. And I'm, you know, sure. He's definitely better at martial arts than you would expect. Yeah. A hundred percent. Do you think he cooks? Do you think he's in his cabin and just like makes himself cacio e pepe with truffles? No. Before everything goes wrong? No. I bet he keeps it pretty tight. So Nick Cage notoriously takes every role. That's his whole thing is he has terrible gambling debts. So he takes every role because he's basically broke. That's, I mean, he that's... lost a lot of money on real estate. Okay. okay. <laughs> but this to me seems like somewhat credible. Oh, no. No, I'm down with this. I think it's great. I don't well, think it's going to be. Regardless of your being down with it. Like, no, I don't think it's going to be a trash movie. I think it could be good. He's done yeah. good film. You know, we don't think, we don't talk enough about the fact that a lot of the truffles that we consume, that you consume as the editor in chief, the editor in chief. Oh, yeah, constantly. Truffles, Always. Yeah. Come from America. Uh huh. You know, come from guys like Nick Cage. With his who pig have a troubled in, past, in Portland. But forge a relationship with a pig. I, I've actually researched truffle hunting a lot for a video. And typically it's done in, in America with dogs, not with pigs. Because pigs eat the truffles. Uh-huh. That's what they say. You can't use a pig because pigs find and the truffles. And there's a special dog, right? And eat them. <laughs> yeah, a special dog. There's a special breed of dog. The truffle dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very cute. Do you remember that story about Prince William? Um, yes, how he that was we talked growing, about on the show. He, yeah, how he was yeah. growing his own truffles. Yeah. And he claimed that he was going to give them all away. But when it came time to <laughs> for, the, for them, them to drop off the donation, they couldn't find them. And he had eaten them all. Just ate them all. Just sprinkled them over everything. Great. Now we are going to take a quick break and we will be back with more stories. There was a funny, strange story out of Mexico where Burger King and their advertising company, We Believers, they're called, pulled a stunt to demonstrate the size of their meals where this ad company would get 
photos of people sleeping in Burger King. Yep. And surreptitious photos of people napping in Burger Kings. Yeah. And captioning them like, yeah, they're that big. Because the suggestion is that food coma, that you go to Burger yeah. King. And then you fall asleep. And you fall asleep because they just are so generous that you can't walk out of there. Uh, everyone who was featured in the advertisement had to agree to it because it was a you know oh, yeah. national campaign. Yep. So They had to sign the release. Yeah. So that's strange to start with. Uh, this reminds me of the time when I used to do meditation in a library and I wasn't sleeping. I yeah, was just, maybe these people are meditating. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. They're all meditating. Well, they I'm look like they're passed I'm looking at these photos out. and I'm wondering like... Some some people might be like, oh, okay, this is where they sleep. But some of them, you yeah. know, they look pretty put together. Maybe they're just meditating. Maybe they're meditating. Yeah. That should be Maybe a new Maybe they're blinking. <laughs> Maybe they're just blinking. Maybe you take enough pictures of one person. I should close the loop on the library story. And that oh, is sorry. just that a security guard kicked me out and For said, sleeping. <laughs> no sleeping in here, bud. And I didn't, I was thinking about saying I was meditating, but I just was like, all right, I get it. Because <laughs> I didn't, I, you know. That you just, didn't want to have that conversation? That didn't seem like the kind of thing I could push back on or the kind of thing that he would give a shit about. It was also a kid's library. Oh, <laughs> you were just meditating in a kid's library? Well, no. It was the kid's section. Maybe, okay, I don't know. In re- remembering this now, it was real creepy. It was a, a large library. It was a big library. It was a library in Soho. And I think that where I had chosen to sit was maybe on the border of the adult section and the kids section. So I think mm-hmm. if you if you wanted to look at it cynically, you could say I was sleeping awkwardly in the kids section so, of a library. Do you want to get back to the food? Daniel, have you looked at these pictures? I mean, I kind of don't believe it. <laughs> a lot of these people are holding onto cups. Yeah. There's one guy who clearly seems like he's napping, but like, isn't it just, it doesn't add up to me that these are all really people who fell asleep in a Burger King in Mexico. This looks, they're so posed. Yeah. How do you feel? I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know what to believe anymore with these ad campaigns. One interesting thing, this might be cultural in that maybe people would not nap in American Burger Kings, mm-hmm. but there is a general manager in saying that in her Mexico City Burger King, she knows that a lot of her customers, after they finish their meals, mm-hmm. they doze off right in the middle of the restaurant. Yeah. I, the I, bigger the burger, the more <laughs> she'd catch them catching their Z's. Aw. So it's funny because I feel like in New York, if you're sleeping in a restaurant, you're a problem. Yeah. But maybe just like... Maybe in some cultures, taking Where a nap after is, is normal. Yeah, that's like the biggest sign. That's like such a show of trust in your mm-hmm. in the restaurant tour that you know I would love. I I'm so full. I'm so happy, and now I feel so comfortable. I'm so comfortable. I'm just gonna fall asleep in public with all yeah. my stuff everywhere. In the same way that burping in some cultures is a is a compliment or slurping or slurping. Um, but another thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, is that. I'm. I maybe this is a larger subject, but I'm interested in this idea of the food coma as it relates to our culture, mm-hmm. because there is this idea when you go to restaurants, you know, this whole like, oh, I want to get destroyed, or like oh, when yeah. you go, or you know, a person who works in a restaurant, they're like, oh, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna, gonna fuck you, you up, we're gonna fuck you up, and to exaggerate how much food or how much booze you're gonna consume, 
to the point where you talk about it as like it's going to be painful is something I always think about and is funny. Like I remember talking to friends who uh, would be like on their way out for a big night of drinking and they'd be like, I want to be so hungover tomorrow. (laughs) Like, do you? Yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. Like what follows logically for me from this like food coma thing is like, you know, if you're going out for a nice night, it's like, boy, I want to get so destroyed at this restaurant that I have no interest in going to the play after. Right. Or whatever. I'm just going to fall asleep at the table. Yeah. How do you? I want food that will just. (laughs) Right. Like NyQuil my food dog because I (laughs) want to pass the fuck out. Right. (laughs) Amanda, next up, weed restaurants. Weed restaurants. Weed restaurants. There are some interesting regulations going on in Los Angeles right now that are allowing one restaurant to open up and soon to be many more. We brought on Mara Judkis to talk us through the intricacies of opening a cannabis cafe. Yeah, uh, Maura, you cover these cafes for the Washington Post. So tell okay. us what have you what have Weed you found cafe out? Cafe reporter Maura, <laughs> <laughs> cannabis reporter. Uh, um, yeah, so I I spent a couple of days in West Hollywood earlier this summer and spoke with people who are trying to open these restaurants, and it's a really weird and complicated situation because they have to find a bunch of loopholes, even though there is an ordinance that allows them to open. The problem is that the local laws actually don't match up with the city laws, and so it's causing a lot of problems for people. So you're talking about specifically West Hollywood's laws versus Los Angeles or versus the state of California? Actually, West Hollywood, they have the most liberal cannabis laws in the entire country right Mm -hmm. now. Um, They're currently the only people who are allowing this type of cafe license, although there are a couple of other states that are looking at it too. So can you talk about the license? What they say right now is you can smoke or vape in a restaurant. This is the only place where you could do that, right? Yeah. So they they created this actually um, partly as an equity issue because they realized that there weren't a lot of public spaces where people could smoke, even though it was legal. I mean, you can smoke in your house, but there are a lot of um, apartments there that don't permit smoking. Hmm. And so it made it really difficult for people, and they wanted to have a public space where people could be social and smoke cannabis or consume cannabis um, in the form of infused food. Uh, but the problem is, so they passed this ordinance that allows these restaurants to open. But the state law actually doesn't permit food to be served or sold, actually, where cannabis is sold. And the reason they did that was because they didn't want the dispensaries to turn into like 7-Elevens with like Reese's Pieces. Gatorade and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But so So so, dispensaries can sell edibles. Yeah. But restaurants cannot. They cannot. And so what is happening right now, they created this special license and they had this big competition and people had to submit business uh, proposals for it. And they ended up giving out 16 licenses uh, for some of them are only for smoking and vaping and edibles. And then some of them are edible only. Mm. And the, the fact that they treat them differently is actually causing a lot of problems right now. But what they've decided to do is the cannabis people are so clever. They've come up with this loophole where you can... <laughs> You can have a separate business that serves food, and you can have a separate business that is essentially licensed on the state level as a dispensary. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't. There's no rule that says that they can't be in the same building. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but could they be? Does there have to be a wall between them? Or yes. could it? Okay. So there has. To, so I could go over to the dispensary side, buy an edible, walk over into the restaurant, and just like 
have it in my purse or something? It'll actually be a little bit more integrated than that. Like it's truly just a loophole. Um, so, so Lowell Farms, which is a big cannabis brand out there, they are opening the first restaurant this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have a space where they have three separate areas. One is for eating only. There will be no cannabis served. You can't have anything um, on that space. And then they have a smoking lounge inside and a smoking lounge outside. And so what they'll essentially do is if you are in the smoking lounge inside and you want to have food, you can order food like to be delivered to the restaurant. And it's just being delivered (laughs) from like a wall, literally Mm, just a wall that's separating the two. But they can't have a door that goes into the other one. And so the, the servers will have to walk outside to serve their food and deliver it to them. And then you'll have a separate check for your cannabis and for oh. your food. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're two separate businesses that are co-located in the same building. And that's kind of like the working loophole. So how does the actual ordering work? Would it be traditional, like traditional ordering style from a server or is it like through an app or? No, through a server. So what the, what they're going to do is um, they'll have a server for food. It has to be separate servers okay. because separate businesses. So yeah. you'll have a food server who will come to your table and take your order. Um, and they have food that kind of pairs well with with like joints and vapes. And So they say. So mm-hmm. they say. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you'll have a bud tender is what it's called. Um, <laughs> and your bud tender will come around and will ask you like, what kind of high do you want to feel? You know, what what's your tolerance level? Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll kind of gauge like what you are, what kind of experience you want to have and also like what you're prepared to have too because they have to be very careful not to overserve people. Um, that's a big issue with these types of restaurants. And so they'll make some recommendations. They'll do um, like table side rolling joint yeah, they, they roll the joint for you, which I think is, yes. is very sweet. <laughs> and they have vapes <laughs> and all kinds of other stuff too. But the food you're ordering from the restaurant right. is still not, Infused with cannabis. Right. Right. Because that is another problem that the state hasn't solved yet. So Um, no one is, still no one is serving. No one is serving infused food yet. Um, But they have a workaround for that too. And so there's another restaurant that's going to be opening at some point later this year or early next. And the, the reason they can't serve infused food yet is because. Everything that is infused has to be sent to a state facility to be tested. Mm. And so you can't really do that with fresh food because uh, it's just going to take too long to have it tested. So it really only works with packaged things like brownies or gummies or drinks. Um, And so some of these places will be serving those prepackaged gummies and drinks and things like that. But to infuse the food, the workaround that they've figured out, they can essentially start their own cannabis manufacturing facility where they will they'll like have a chef the chef who's making the same food for this restaurant will also start a line of infused dressings or like chocolate syrup or something that you can put on top of mm, the regular right. sprinkle it on food. top or yeah, drizzle it on top okay. exactly and then they'll send that to the state testing facility it'll come back that will be a separate business located under the same mm. roof essentially and so you have like three businesses oh operating under the same address and that's like the only way to do this right now <laughs> <laughs> so if I was to get steak au poivre, the 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 poivre sauce could mm-hmm. be weed infused, but there's they couldn't marinate the steak in no. weed. No, eventually, <laughs> when this is allowed. Eventually, at this point, yeah. not at all. They're hoping to change the state laws so that you can infuse food. I mean, the problem is that with food, it's also your high can be kind of different, is mm-hmm. what they say. You know, right. it's like it, it affects everyone differently based mm-hmm. on your body mass and, and all kinds of other factors. And so um, they're going to have to be really careful with the dosing when they when they go in that direction, right. but they are hoping to do that. 
Are there any other weird restrictions that we should know about with these kinds of businesses? So, so it's still federally illegal, and so you can't use a regular bank. And so there are some community banks that have sprung up to like solve this problem. But also, like wow. most of it is in cash still, and like they pay their taxes in cash is what I found out wow. too, which is crazy for you the city. Definitely need security. Yeah. So like the city, it's a real problem for the city too because once they have all these restaurants that are paying their taxes in cash, they're going to have like millions of dollars in cash, and it's hard to count all of that money. You know, there's so many crazy issues that go into running a cannabis business. Mm -hmm. They also have limited hours, and they're trying to remedy this. So right now, cannabis businesses in the state of California can only be open till 10 p.m., but restaurants can stay open till 2. And so they have this weird gap mm -hmm. where they're actually going to have a last call for cannabis oh, at 10. Oh, but their bar will stay open. Yeah, but you can't actually serve alcohol is the other thing because you can't serve alcohol mm -hmm. in the same premise where cannabis is being sold. Right. So Lowell has an amazing mocktail menu. Yes, exactly. And mm -hmm. so you'll have a mocktail. You'll like enjoy being high because by then you've already probably smoked something and then you can just hang out in this space until two and then it'll close like a regular restaurant but they they are also lobbying to change that as well because they think it's kind of unfair people want to come late at night and they think it's really going to impact their business mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why don't they just build another business inside that sells alcohol because <laughs> i think that is actually that's a really good question but i think that they are also just really worried about, you know, they want to they want to do this right because mm -hmm. they want to set a good precedent for other people. And so they don't want to push the rules too much. They just want to push them enough so that they can open and serve people. But I mean, that that's on like a federal level. You can't have cannabis and alcohol in the same product or the same space. And so they don't want to bring negative attention to this because they want to they want to make this normal. They want it to be something that will exist all across the country. And so they know that people are really watching them mm -hmm. and they they just want to be a good example. Awesome. Well, Mara, thank you for coming in and telling us all about this stuff. It's it's a wild world out there. Thanks for having me. Daniel, there was a funny story in Vulture this week. They were, uh, I think, examining the 25-year anniversary of the show Friends. Yeah. And an amazing restaurant-related story came out of it where we find out that Friends fanatics go to the restaurant The Little Owl, which is a famous restaurant in New York. It's, mm -hmm. it's a very well-known neighborhood spot here. And they take pictures in front of it because that is the same address of where the Friends team lived and the same address as Central Perk. Hundreds of people a day <laughs> taking selfies in front of the Little Owl. And the Little Owl ownership was like annoyed about it? Well, I think it's annoying in that people come in a lot and are frustrated that they can't buy anything and are frustrated that it's not like Central Perk, which is the coffee shop in the show. <laughs> it's actually a very expensive West Village restaurant. Yeah. Like they come in and the cheapest thing they could get is like a coffee, which they don't even serve to go. Oh, they want to just, like, have something there. Yeah. Do you think those conversations outside are like, we're going to go to Central Perk, and then they show up, and it's, like, a trendy West Village yeah, restaurant? Like, wah, wah. So, like, they're already bummed, because they're not, it's certainly not the experience that they were looking for. Yeah. Though, I mean, were they really thinking it would be just like Central Perk there? I don't know. It's funny, because there's been a resurgence in Friends popularity. Because so of I'm Netflix. sure. Well, no, yes, and uh, millennial, not millennials, Gen X, Gen Z? Gen Z. Gen Z. Obsessed with friends. Interesting. Yeah, big thing. It seems like such a waste for Little Owl to be there. That should just be Central Perk and just cash in, baby, you know? Yeah. How busy would that coffee shop be? 
It'd be insane. I love it because um, just they, rebuild Central Park. Like the coffee shop is not the coffee shop from Seinfeld. It's like a whole. There's all these ways to it, turn New York into a Disneyland. Okay, it basically is already. <laughs> uh, they asked the owner Joey Campanaro if he had any idea when he signed the lease, and he said no because he had, didn't think. How would you even know to look that up? So he did regular Google searches and looked for liens and violations yeah. against the building. Blah blah. blah signed the lease, and then. Right after they took over, he saw there were 400 people on the corner across from the restaurant. And that's when he found out. <laughs> In my head, I see them as zombies. <laughs> 400 people. Yeah. Another funny story from this, David Schwimmer came to eat at the restaurant once. Yeah. And was sitting in the window. And was pissed that it wasn't Central Park. <laughs> yes. He was sitting in the window. He's like, oh, instinct. Joey was like, um, I don't think you want to sit here. <laughs> can I get you this other table? And he didn't want to. And then he finally understood when he saw all the people. And like, oh you don't want to be Ross sitting in the window of the address of the Friends building. It's no. just two on the nose. Oh, my God. They just swarmed. They were yeah. like, Ross, 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 <laughs> You're here. Ross. Fine. I knew you'd be here. <laughs> That's crazy. So owning that space and not realizing, to me, is like those crazy stories of people who live in the South and – Someone comes and they're like, we think there's oil under your house. And then they just <laughs> dig and then they become billionaires. Because like that restaurant should be Central Park. I haven't been to Little Owl in a long time. It just seems like it just seems like a huge wasted opportunity. That's like owning this, a store at Disneyland and like making it a Williams-Sonoma. It's just like you have a captive audience there for coffee and croissants. And it's I like, think he's doing fine with his plan of having just a lovely neighborhood restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be like, imagine walking, seeing us together and us not podcasting. I know. It would be just like that. <laughs> Daniel, there's a celebrity chef in France and he is cool, suing, whatever. Just he's suing the Michelin Guide Yeah, because they moved him from three stars to two stars and he thinks they got it wrong on their comment on his souffle. They claimed in the Michelin write-up that he had cheddar cheese in his souffle, and he claims he does not put cheddar cheese in his souffle. It was actually saffron that made it look orange, and the dum-dum at Michelin thought it was cheddar. Actually, he only uses—hold on, let me find the cheese. Where's <laughs> the cheese? Reblochon, Beaufort, and Tome. Those are the three classic French cheeses that he uses in his souffle, not cheddar. So he demanded to be removed from the guide earlier this year in January. Uh, in July, he accused them of profound incompetence in an open letter published in La Pointe. Mm -hmm. And now he's suing them. Good. So this is a three-pronged situation. Okay. First, removing from the guide. Second, open letter calling you out for this bullshit. Third thing, I'm going to sue you. Yeah. It seems over the top to me. Does it? Does it? Yeah. Suing suing Michelin? Yeah. I mean, it's great. You think it's great? First of all, I love I mean, it's great. It's great. What if your colleague Ryan Sutton demoted a restaurant or like in his review he made a mistake and then they sued us? Here's the thing. Yeah. Ryan Sutton would never demote a restaurant because he thought they used cheddar cheese. He would base his opinion of the dish on the caliber of the dish. Sure. So if he believes that they demoted him because he's using cheddar cheese, 
then the claim is fair. He's Well, I think they didn't like the souffle regardless. Yeah. And there was a small error, which is they misrepresented the cheese. Right. You're 100% right. They didn't understand right. yeah, what I'm the rewinding. cheese was, cheese was, but they obviously didn't like the souffle. Yeah, no, it's like someone seeing for, a, yeah. it's like someone seeing a play and not liking the story arc and then he's like, "You didn't understand the color of the costumes." Yeah, exactly. But do you think it's embarrassing for them to have misidentified the cheese? Yes. Yeah. Sure. So that's a side. But yeah. it's an error that <laughs> I could see happening. You just you name the wrong cheese. Yeah, but like a f- a three star French restaurant would yeah. never use cheddar. Also, like we fact check a lot of things when we do reviews. I like we fact yeah. check the ingredients. You'd never, they, we'd never get that. You never wrong. just guess cheddar. Can you? So it's I, like saying I, they did, American they did cheese. Screw up. It's not even that crazy. Like it's like, listen, I think that it is a pretty, pretty staggeringly terrible mistake. And to the point where I don't I don't mind that he is making this a point of contention yeah. at all. I but think, also I think, I think no one wins here. I want these guys to be such pedantic shitheads. <laughs> that is you what, like that he's that like is, playing the role that he's meant to play. That is his role. That is the cartoon version of a French three star chef. Right. Is someone who would sue the Michelin guide for what is he suing them for? What's the claim? Do you know? Lost business defamation of character libel (laughs) slander (laughs) he said i've been dishonored i saw my team in tears to have them call you one evening without warning without anything written down without anything to say that that's it it's over he said he plunged in it plunged him into a depression that's what he sued them for let's see no i'm just just telling you (laughs) can i just say though that the michelin system of the three stars how you can't have better than three stars. A lot of you hear a lot of people say that three stars is scary because once you get there, the only thing you can do is lose it. That doesn't sound exciting to me. You know, no. I'd never nope. want to pursue anything that has a top limit. Like, you know, when you hear karate people or like martial arts just start talking about the different stripes on their black belt. I'm like, that sounds so much less exciting. Like I'm a black belt, five stripes. Like all I hear is black belt, buddy. You yeah, know? but black belt, once you get it, aren't you a black belt for good? <laughs> you can't lose your black belt. You don't lose it. You can't. I what mean, you don't I don't want know is enough an accolade. You don't to... want an accolade that you can lose. That's, that's what sucks. Like constantly maintaining this level of excellence mm-hmm. is just exhausting. But that's part that's part of the thing. I, the, the losing a black Restaurants belt. Restaurants really don't have it fair. Yeah. They just get they have restaurant critics, they have to deal with this shit. Yeah. Amanda, your 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 left roundhouse kick just doesn't have the steam it once did, <laughs> and therefore I'm demoting you to Brown. Yeah, I think you just keep that forever. That makes sense to me though, because like you know, a 95 year old black belt. Let him have to, it though. Well, but what to, difference does it make? They're not a black belt to me anymore. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That like. Don't be rude. I'm not. But you think it, be, it should be like driver's tests, where like every once in a while you just gotta. Keep your stripes. What does a black belt mean to you? I mean, what danger is it, though? Who are you hurting? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Eater's Digest. If you liked the programming, we have one simple request, and that is that you tell a friend about the program. 
and how much you liked it. <laughs> and that's our one request. Why is that funny? Why is that funny? <laughs> program. <laughs> well, I, I realized after the first time I said program that it would be funny if I said program you more. Do it again. I think we should keep this all in. <laughs> this is the outro. This is the land. All right, great. This is No Man's Land. Big, Podcast No Man's Land. Big thank you to Adam Coughlin of Eater London, Farley Elliott of Eater LA, Martha Daniel, our producer. Mm-hmm. Oh, one more time. Please check out our survey at voxmedia.com slash pod survey or find it below in the show notes. And remember to send us emails to digest at eater.com. Yeah, oh, yeah that's, that's it. Easy. Great. That's it. We've got so many great emails. We got an especially great email from a guy telling us to do a whole episode about eating brains. brains. We're going to do it. And we're going to do it for sure. If you have brain stories, let you, us know. Yeah. If you are a brain surgeon and you monitor the way that food interacts with the, Whoa, the synapse. Good idea. Yeah. We're thinking outside the box here. My brain must be firing. Oh, my I'll tell God. you that much. <laughs> we'll talk uh, about Daniel's brain pills that he takes every day. I mean, you eat the pills. You know, you swallow them, but are you eating them? I don't know. Are you eating pills? I don't know. Actually. Anyway. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>